Remain standing with me, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, Luke 19. We're going to read verse 20, verses 28 to 40. Verse 28, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would show us wonderful things today from your word. Move in our midst, cause our our ears to hear and our hearts to understand the hope that we have in Christ as our King. I pray that Jesus would be high and lifted up today in our midst. In his name I pray, amen. Please be seated. As you know, we've been moving through our study in Acts, and so Luke wrote Acts. I thought it would be good for us to look at the triumphal entry today for Palm Sunday from Luke's gospel account, and we'll do the same next week for Easter, so you can look ahead in Luke's account. Now, the the context of this, you'll notice as Luke is writing, he says, and he began to tell the people, or rather... um, there, there, uh, where are we? In verse 19. Yeah, I'm already up in 20 here. Where's the transition here? And when he had said these things, that's what I'm looking for in verse 28. There's a transition from something that was happening before. And you can look in your Bible and you can see what was happening before. He told them a parable, the parable of the ten minas. And if you look up at the first verse of chapter 19, you see it was the story of Zacchaeus. The story of a wee little man and a wee little man was he climbed up in, uh, again, I won't sing it for you, but yet another children's song that we all remember. And the story of Zacchaeus, I think sometimes because these are children's songs and children's, we, we think of them as children's stories, we miss the glory that's in this story. And I won't preach multiple sermons today, so we won't do that, but sometime we'll look at the story of Zacchaeus and see how salvation came to his house that day. But the reason I tell you that is because they're most likely sitting in Zacchaeus' house when he tells them the story of the parable of the ten minas. Uh, You look at the transition. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. So they're there with Zacchaeus in his home. Remember, he told Zacchaeus, I'm coming to eat at your house today. And he went and he ate with sinners 
as the world looked upon and the religious leaders looked at him. Now, the intention of this parable, and the reason we need to understand it a little bit before we look at the triumphal entry is because it gives us some of the context to understand what what was happening in the triumphal entry. And the intention of this parable was yet again Jesus trying to teach his disciples that the kingdom, although ushered in in Christ's coming, the kingdom was not going to be consummated just yet. The disciples wanted that. Remember in Acts 1, we saw the disciples, even after the resurrection, even after Jesus had told them time and time again, not yet, not yet, the disciples come to him in Acts 1 and say, is it now? Are you going to do it now? And Jesus again says, not yet. And I think we can relate to this because we want Jesus' might to be shown. We want his power to be shown. We want him to kind of peel back the curtain and show his kingly reign. In a sense, it's like Clark Kent when he begins to peel back and reveal that he's Superman, right? We want people to know. And sometimes our our intentions and our motives may be a bit mixed, right? There's sometimes our motives are, we want people to know because they've mocked us and belittled us for our faith in Christ, and we want them to know that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And other times, our motives may be a little more pure, and we want people to know because we want them to be saved from the wrath of hell. We want them to know that Christ is king. Regardless of the mixing of our motivation, we ask, Lord, how long will you remain behind this curtain, this veil? And the followers of Jesus, they wanted that too. They wanted him to establish his kingdom. We see this again, and I've referenced the one in Acts, Mark 10.35, rather. uh, In his account, James and John come and say, you know, can we sit on your right and your left? They're looking for that earthly kingdom. And in John 6.15, we see Jesus withdraw from the crowd when he sensed that they were going to take and make him king by force. So what we see happening now in the triumphal entry is something different. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. He, all the way back in Luke 9, it says that he, he set his face steadfastly. Some have said he set his face as flint, right? Steadfastly, he's looking to Jerusalem. All the way back in Luke 9, we see that, that he's got a plan. There's a mission that he's on, and he continues that in this account. Now, this parable would have had some contemporary parallels that the people would understand. I was trying to think of what, how we could relate to this, and it would be as if I began telling you a parable, and I began that parable that there once was a people who was hated by another people so greatly that this other people conspired to take over airplanes and fly them into buildings and kill as many people as they could. And you would immediately, the context of that would, your mind would immediately wrap around the events on 9-11, wouldn't they? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here, although the parable is not about Herod Archelaus. There is a parallel to what happened with Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great, who was called a king, the Romans didn't hand that title out very often. Um, They had a different way of rule, as you might remember. There was some democracy to, to that, although some would argue that Caesar's rule was really democratic. There at least was an elected senate. They were trying to get away from this, so they didn't hand that that title out, especially to their further regions. But they did with Herod the Great. He was called king. He died. And his son, Herod Archelaus, wanted that title. He wanted to be called king. And he wanted it so badly that he left his region, Judea, and he went to Rome to appeal to Caesar for that title. 
And so with that in mind, I want to read this parable, parable and then begin to look at its con- context. So look back at God's word in verse 11 of, of Luke 19. As they heard these things, they're sitting in Zacchaeus' house, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There's the reason for it. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall now have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at least, and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, Herod Archelaus went wanting to gain this title. And interestingly enough, he took his own delegation with him family members and friends, and another delegation went as well of Jews who did not want Archelaus to rule over them. He had already shown his hatred of them, uh, killing up to 3,000 religious leaders in the temple. He'd done some horrid things. So they went to appeal to Caesar not to let him rule. And interestingly enough, not only did, did once upon once arriving in Rome did these appeal to Caesar, but even Archelaus' own family did not want him to rule. They, know, they knew he was unfit to rule, that he wouldn't be a good leader. Caesar took the time to think about it and decided to come up with a plan to let him rule, but not as a king. He gave him a new name, uh, a different title, a title that had not existed up to this point. And so he came back to Galilee and began his service or his rule. Well, if you remember when... Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem. And following his birth, what happened? Herod the Great was trying to take the lives. He had heard from the wise men that there was a king, and so he was trying to take the lives and of, the, of, the, of young boys. And Mary and Joseph went to Egypt. They fled. And when it was time for them to return... Joseph was fearful. Now Herod the Great's dead. They heard he was dead, but he's still still fearful. And an angel comes and warns him not to go back to the region, not to go back to Judea. Why? Because of Archelaus. 
This was who the, the, the angel warned Joseph about. So where did Joseph go? He went to the region of Galilee, to the city of Nazareth. So that's why Jesus became known as Jesus of Nazareth, even though he had been born in Bethlehem. Now I tell you all this so that you begin to see that God is at work. God's at work through a lot of details, through incredible timing, to accomplish his plan. Interestingly enough, Archelaus didn't last long. By 6 AD, he was out. And thankfully for the people of his rule, uh, they were grateful, of course. So the parable had these modern parallels, these kind of current events that would have echoed in the ears. It would have gotten people's attention. They would have listened a little more carefully. What's he talking about? Was the parable really about Archelaus? No. No, the parable was about Jesus. Jesus would soon ascend to heaven after his death and resurrection. He would go to be given the kingdom to one day return. And we don't have time to unpack the whole parable because I want us to get to the triumphal entry. But this parable is different from the parable of the talents. The talents has to do with spiritual gifts. Each person was given a different amount of talents. Uh, what was actually money, but it, that word, English word talent for us has become, come to mean both things. In this case, the ten minas, everyone gets the same amount. And the ten minas actually represent the gospel. We've all been given the gospel. And we've been given charge to take the gospel, to commit our lives to the gospel, to live out the gospel, and to share the gospel with the world around us. There's an investment idea behind this that we're called to invest what we've been given. But the point of the, of the parallel, or of the parable rather, was for Jesus to say, the kingdom's not coming immediately. I'm not going to pull back the curtain immediately. I'm not going to show my power and my rule immediately. It's still going to remain hidden. And yet the disciples wanted it to be now. And if we're honest, so would we. I mean, don't we want it to, Jesus, come quickly. We look at the world around us and we say, come now. But instead, we see something happen that's unique. And that is, in Jesus' life up to this point, he, in a sense, pushed back on any sense of credit or honor or praise for most of his ministry. But in this account, we see him receive it. Jesus and his disciples are leaving now Jericho. This is where Zacchaeus was. They're going to Jerusalem. Jericho is east and north a little bit of Jerusalem. So they're traveling southwest. And what is in between them and the city, Mount Zion, is the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that you can go stand on the Mount of Olives and look westward from the east. You can look toward the west and there's the city. That would have been their view as they came over the mountain. But coming up the mountain, they would have passed through these two villages, Bethany and Bethphage. So that's what this, the story that we hear. And there's all this geographical information in here, and it's... It's, it's significant. It's, it, there's a reason that it's here. And I want us to get our minds uh, around the picture of what's happening. So they're ascending Mount Olivet, as it was also called, and this is where the story begins. Now, a couple other things that we need to remember that have happened. One is Lazarus has been raised from the dead. He was from Bethany, so this is his village. We don't know if it happened here John gives that account or if it happened a little bit before this, but it was recent that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Everyone that was with Jesus has just seen Zacchaeus saved. Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, right? He was a crony of cronies. He was one that 
his own people even hated because he partnered with the Romans. We've just heard the parable of the ten minas. My kingdom's not coming immediately. I'm not establishing it or consummating it immediately. And what we see here is the perfect timing of everything. It is as if everything is moving into this crescendo for the triumphal entry. Now, the triumphal entry isn't the ultimate crescendo. It's one of building crescendos. And we know that the ultimate crescendo is what we celebrate next Sunday, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But when we look at the details involved, we see that nothing has been left out. How someone who doesn't know a sovereign God might say, nothing's been left to chance, right? Everything is in order. So let's consider what some of these details are. Well, we mentioned the parable. We've looked at that. The second thing we see in this text is the donkey's coal. Uh, the, the donkey's colt or foal. I'm going to interchange those words there, colt or foal, baby, a young donkey. And the owners of this foal willingly share for Jesus, something that doesn't seem normal. Jesus tells the disciples, if they ask, just say the Lord needs it. They go, and of course they're asked, how do the disciples respond? And They say exactly what Jesus told them. And then in verse 32 and 34, there's no protest. The people say, okay, in essence. We're not told what they say. We just, there's no protest. They let the the donkey go. And we don't know if this is something that Jesus prearranged because he knew the people. We don't know if this is something that was because the people knew who Jesus was and they knew he was in the region and they uh, had heard about him and they wanted to be supportive, that this phrase, the Lord needs it, was enough for them to be moved, or if this was completely a divine work of God moving in the hearts of people against what they would normally do. I think our hearts kind of root for the miracle, right? We, we, we kind of root for the latter one because we like seeing the supernatural, but notice that it's no less incredible that God orchestrated all of these events and all of this timing than if it was just indeed a miraculous move in the hearts of people. And hopefully we'll see that as these things build. It's no less incredible. He works all things together for good. And one of the joys for me in the, in the past six weeks of being here has in getting to know some of you, hearing the stories, your stories, of how God has worked in incredible ways through a lot of different details, through a lot of different twists and turns in your life to bring you to where you are today. It's, it's encouraging It's exciting. And frankly, we need to hear these stories from one another. We need to share these stories with each other, that God is at work in our lives, moving for our good and for his glory. Another aspect of the situation to consider is that the cult has never been set on. Verse 30, the cult has never been set on. It's considered pure or unused. We see in the Old Testament that an animal who had not been set on or who, who had not been yoked or that had not been yoked would be considered for sacred things because it was considered unused. Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3, 1 Samuel 6.7. The cult is also in the ancient world an image of royalty. We see this in Judges 5.10. We think of a cult uh, in, in the sense of humility And I think there is some of that imagery, but it was also, there was a sense of royalty in the ancient world. We see it also in Genesis 49, verse 11 and 12. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, in Genesis 49, speaks prophetically over his sons. And Judah in particular is pictured riding a colt of a donkey and pictured as a king or as a ruler. This is what 
Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This also fulfilled a prophecy that was given by Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9. I think this is even more significant. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, one more detail, one more very specific detail that God is bringing together at just the right time when Jesus' path would line up on His way from Jericho to Jerusalem, coming through the right village with the right colt, tied, unset on, unused, available by His owners to be used by Jesus to enter for the triumphal entry. Another detail, the Passover is approaching. It's coming up for Passover week, the timing again, perfect, as Jesus begins to enter the city. Remember what Passover celebrated. It was the promised deliverance of God to his people that he would bring them out of Egypt, out of the bonds of slavery. And the Passover followed the the ten plagues, right? This was the last plague, the tenth plague that the Passover happened Pharaoh would experience these difficult things and would, would seem to want to let the people go and then change his mind. But then came the last plague where God said, I'm going to send the angel of death to take the firstborn from every household. But he told his people, you take a lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood of the lamb and brush it or paint it on the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over those homes that have that blood painted on it. And now we see Jesus, the Passover lamb, coming to Jerusalem at just the right time, preparing to lay down his life, spilling his blood for his people to atone for their sins. Another detail, this logistically would have brought in a lot of people. A lot of people came to Jerusalem for the Passover. So many people are coming. And in this particular case, in this text that we've looked at, people are joining him from outside the city. They're coming down the Mount of Olives. They're not in the city yet. And they join in from these villages, these pilgrims that would have been coming from different directions. All the roads would have converged as they came to Jerusalem. And these pilgrims that were coming for Passover would have been the very ones who they'd heard the miracles. They heard what had happened. They heard of Jesus and they knew what had happened. And they came and they laid their cloaks down. Another detail, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. What a miracle. Of all of Jesus' miracle, this was something that was really special. Someone coming back after several days from the dead. This had happened right here on this eastern side of the Mount of Olives. This point is to bring people's attention to Christ. In a sense, it made people ripe to respond to Christ. And verse 37 points that out. John, in his account of, the, of Lazarus being raised from the dead, said in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. This sign was then used to draw even more people to come to see Jesus, to see what was about to happen. Remember, too, this also stirred up the religious leaders. The religious leaders wanted to do what with Jesus? Well, by this time, they wanted to kill him, and they were already plotting. And even the raising of Lazarus played into that. 
If you remember in John 12, verse 9, that they wanted to kill not only Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus to quell the story. Another detail, praises were given. This was unusual. This wasn't normal. The people from all of these areas were converging. Not only were the disciples of Jesus praising Him, but all of these pilgrims who were coming for the Passover, because of the miracles and the healings, verse 37 says, the people were praising Him. And then we see these praises come together in something that echoes both the Psalms and the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Did you pick up on that? In chapter 19... Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from one of the Psalms. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's from Luke's announcement that the angels made at Jesus' birth. Tying together that Jesus is king of heaven and earth. And of course, the religious leaders were stirred up in verse 39. Now, we don't know if these religious leaders, because it says these were in the crowd. Maybe these religious leaders were some who were sympathetic to Jesus. They were curious. They were inquisitive. Maybe even some were believers. But they came to him and said, tell your disciples to keep it down. They were concerned about him. We don't know if they were in that category, if these were religious leaders who were just mad and wanted him to be quiet. But either way, they said, tell them to keep it down. And Jesus' response is, even if they didn't shout out these praises, the very rocks would cry out. Either way, this triumphal entry was sovereignly orchestrated by God along with all these other things, all these details that we look at here, to usher in one thing. That is the death of Christ. This was why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come just to set an example for us, to live a good life, to be a moral example or a religious teacher. Jesus came to die. And as we consider how God holds all things together and works all things together in the life of Jesus in this story, I want us to consider what this means for our own lives. What does this mean for our own lives? Well, it means that the very same God who orchestrated all of these details down to the exact timing is the same God who is with you in your life, in the mess of your life, working in the details of your life. Timing, the result of so many different things converging in your life. You feel the pressure. You think, what's coming next? Or how is all of this going to work together? Direction. All of us have faced different twists and turns, unexpected things that happen. How do we respond? Resources. We all think of things that we lack, things that we think that we need or know that we need. And we wonder, how are we going to make it? The same God who accomplished the fulfillment of all of these, the, the timing, the direction, the resources, everything that Jesus needed is the same God that works in our lives too. He's never late. His timing is always perfect. I don't know who said this. He's never late and hardly ever early. But the more I live, the more I see how true that is. He's never late. He's rarely early. We learn to trust Him. His timing is always perfect. Direction. What surprises us never catches Him off guard. He's never caught off guard. Don't be anxious for anything. Resources. What we think we're lacking, He knows exactly what we need. And he's not short on the resources to meet those needs. You see, we can rest in the God who promises these things because his promises are sure, because of who he is, because of his character, because he is our heavenly father, we can trust him. We look in scripture like Isaiah 41.10 and read, I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
and we take hope. Or we read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take that and meditate on that for a few days. All unrighteousness? You've been cleansed from all unrighteousness? And Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. God is at work in the difficulties and the unexpected things of your life. He's not far off, but He's near and present with you. And just as He's working in these minute details that we see in the triumphal entry, He is working in the minute details of your life. And all of these things have a purpose, just as they did in the life of Jesus. For Jesus, it was everything leading up to His death. His death with a purpose. His death to atone for the sins sins of us, me, you, our sins. This work that Jesus came to do is what we're now celebrating, especially in this Holy Week. What starts out today with the triumphal entry leads into what we'll celebrate Thursday, the, the instituting of a supper at Passover. And Friday, remembering His death. And then Sunday, celebrating His resurrection. And we've seen in our study of Acts that this was all according to the definite plan of God. Do you remember that phrase? Peter used it when he preached his sermon in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. This was the definite plan of God. It was the peeling back of the curtain. Here he receives the praise of the people. Even if they didn't truly understand, they were praising the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When he says, if, the, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It refers back actually to a prophecy that Habakkuk made. Habakkuk in, in, in warning the people of God not to build a city based on sin or not to work for frivolous things as they had been in the habit of doing. Habakkuk warns them. He says, even the stones will cry out. But what follows that warning in the next verse is this promise. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Jesus came to do, entering the city now as the King of kings and Lord of lords, begins the process that will unfold in a new heaven and a new earth where the knowledge of God is and will be honored and praised by everyone. And Jesus Christ, Christ the King, will reign. Why? Why did Jesus peel back the curtain? Why did He show His power? Because He's the King? Because He is the ruler? And then why did He mask it, in a sense, mask it back up? You know, there were all of these things that happened at the crucifixion. The laying down of His life. And for some, the curtain was peeled open. Uh, Some people did see. You think of the, the thief on the cross with Him. You think of the Roman... Centurion, who responded to the gospel, but others didn't see. This is the now and not yet of the kingdom. We see it, it's close, it's present, and yet it's still far off. It's not here yet. See, Jesus came this time not wielding power as a sovereign ruler. 
He came humbly as a servant, exactly as had been prophesied about him in Isaiah. He came not to live luxury, live in luxury as a king would, but he came to suffer. Not for suffering's sake, not simply to give us an example of a life lived in asceticism, but he came to suffer for you and I did. He came to suffer for our sins. He came not to live life to the fullest and achieve man's ideas of success, but he came to die. The king came to die. The Lion of Judah came to die as the Passover lamb. He did this. He died so that you and I can live. So that death would not have the final word. And I can tell you that there's another triumphal entry coming. And it's going to look different. Jesus will return. He will return this time as the sovereign ruler before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He will return in glory, putting an end to all suffering, sorrow, and injustice. He will return to end death forever for you and for me and for all who are found in Him. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank You for coming for laying down your life to die for our sins. We celebrate you today as King. And we welcome you and rejoice in you on this Palm Sunday. No other king could vanquish war horses and warriors riding the foal of a donkey. No other king could break the battle bow and backbone of warfare by the brokenness of crucifixion. No other king could replace the dominion of darkness and the tyranny of evil with an eternal reign of grace and peace. No other king would give his life and death for the redemption of rebels and idolaters like us. No other king can transform slaves of sin and death into prisoners of hope. What a calling. What an identity. What a reality. You have made us prisoners of hope. Lord Jesus, you are that king, the king of glory, the monarch of mercy, the governor of grace, the prince of peace, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Great is our rejoicing because grace is our salvation. You have come to us and for us, righteous and victorious, loving and sovereign. By the riches of your grace, continue to free us from the waterless pits, the broken cisterns, and worthless idols. By the power of the gospel, enable us to live as prisoners of hope and agents of redemption until the day of all things new. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.